come now to God's Word, and we are desperate for the Lord to show up and help us, and He is faithful to do that. He is faithful to minister to us through His Word and to continue to sustain and strengthen and nourish our faith by His Word. So let's pray now and ask Him to be with us in this time. Our Father, we do come to You as Your children called by Your name, and we come to You in need with no confidence in ourselves or our own ability, our own strength, or our own intellect when it comes to understanding Your Word. Father, You tell us that spiritual things are spiritually imparted. And so we pray that Your Spirit would come now and do that. We pray that as we look to Your Word, that You would overcome our sin, overcome our doubts, our skepticism, our fear, and drive your truth deep into our hearts, which we pray you would make soft so that they would receive it. Give us eyes to see you in your word. Give us eyes to see ourselves as we were and even as we still are in Adam. And give us eyes to see Christ who has accomplished our salvation. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So we are in the second sermon in the series through Genesis. This today is a sermon with a lot to cover. I felt that way last week. I feel that way about the sermon text next week, should the Lord give us the Lord's Day a week from today. Most pointedly today, we're going to be thinking about the Garden of Eden and its significance, and we're going to be thinking about the covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden and its significance for us in our understanding of the scripture. So, truth in advertising, this is one of those times where I am aware and a little bit self-conscious that the first half of this sermon or so is going to be kind of teachy, it's going to be robust in terms of the content, and this is not a seminary lecture, this is a sermon, and I am aware of that, and I aim to preach it, not teach it. And then I promise you, in the latter half of the message, as we land the plane with a couple of reflections, we will exalt, we trust, in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for us. But I know that you want to understand God's Word. I want to understand God's Word. And it's good that we be equipped to think well and to think biblically and to think theologically about what God has revealed to us. We want to be equipped. Amen? And so I pray that we will be today. So, put your sermon listening thinking hats on and seek to track with me as we seek to track with God's Word. And may He give us grace to do just that. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking today at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1-1 through 2, 3, and the 7 days of creation. If you have not listened to that sermon yet, it may affect how this lands on you today, but even if you have not listened to that sermon yet, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, because it is going to be foundational, not just for you know, us as Christians, but foundational even for this sermon series. So you can find that on the website or on any podcast app where our sermon audio is found. Just as you're turning uh, to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, just want to make this plain. Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is not 
another account of creation. Sometimes you hear that asserted, that like it's a second account of creation and it's somehow Genesis 1 and 2 are at odds with one another. That's ridiculous. It is not another account of creation. All Genesis 2 is doing is focusing in on particular pieces of the general overview that was given in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, we get the flyover. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, we get more of a focus on the Garden of Eden, a couple of trees within the garden, Adam and Eve, and a covenant that God makes with Adam. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Before we go any further, I'm going to read these verses for us, beginning with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. This is the Word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. Amen. We thank God for His Word. So my plan for today is to, kind of three parts, but I feel like I say parts and things like that a lot. Track with me for just a moment. First part of the sermon, we're going to survey the text. We're just going to walk through it and observe the major things in it. I'm going to make some comments about some of those things. But then what we're going to do in the second part of the sermon is come back and consider several of the major things one at a time. 
We're going to unpack those things biblically and theologically. And then lastly, we will conclude with two reflections on this material that will center around Christ and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. All right, so that's the plan. Let's walk through the text and survey it together. Put your eyes on verse 4. You see that the verse begins with these words. These are the generations of. That's a common heading that you're going to see over and over again in the book of Genesis. And what that's doing is introducing a new block of narrative material. And so when we see this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, what we know is that we are about to read an account of what happened with the heavens and the earth. Verse 5, put your eyes there. This verse is a little bit of a stumbling block for some people because of the timing with which some of these things occur. It need not be. We know that God made vegetation generally and initially. We were told that in verse 11 of chapter 1. On the third day, God created vegetation in a general sense. We know that God has also ordained natural processes through which vegetation would nourish itself, through which it would germinate and it would grow. God would also ordain that human beings would cultivate vegetation on the earth. And so, the acknowledgement of verse 5 is simply this, that there are kinds of vegetation that have not yet sprung up because God has not sent rain, and there are kinds of vegetation that have not yet sprung up because there aren't human beings to cultivate it. Now, it is at that point in time that God is going to create man. Put your eyes on verse 7. God creates man from the dust of the ground, and God breathes life into man, and he becomes a living creature. Then in verse 8, we see that God plants a garden in Eden in the east. So it seems that Eden is actually bigger than the garden that's planted within it. God puts Adam in that garden, and God, as we're going to find out, has particular plans for man in the garden. And the garden is the place where God will especially locate His presence with Adam and Eve. The garden is the place where God will especially locate His gifts to Adam and Eve. Put your eyes on verse 9. God causes every kind of good tree to spring up in the garden. Anything that looks good or is good for food, God causes it to be there. And then we learn of two particular trees that are there. They're mentioned by name. The tree of life is there, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just a couple of remarks on these trees very quickly. The tree of life, biblically, represents eternal life. This tree was not magic. Right? This tree was what it was because God's Word had made it so. It had God's promise attached to it. Now the tree of, knowledge of, of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree also was not magic. It was not poison or something. This tree was what it was because God's Word had made it so. It had God's command, His prohibition attached to it. In eating of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve would come to know the good that they had lost. They would come to know the evil that they had gained through their disobedience. In verses 10 to 14, we get more description of the garden. The way it is described is significant when it's viewed in light of the rest of the Bible. We're going to come back to that. 
In verses 15 to 17, we get some specifics of the covenant that God made with Adam. And we're going to come back and consider that covenant. In verses 18 to 25, we have the account of the naming of the animals, which is simply a demonstration of Adam's dominion over the creation. And we also have the creation of Eve, the creation of woman, and the establishment of marriage. We're going to come back to that as well. So now, we're going to make our way through some of the major significant content of Genesis 2 under three headings. So this is kind of that middle part of the sermon where we're going to think biblically and theologically about some of the stuff in Genesis 2 under three headings. So number one is simply the significance of the Garden of Eden. Number one, the significance of the Garden of Eden. So I want us to be able to think biblically, and by that I mean I want us to be thinking Genesis all the way through the prophets, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the epistles to Revelation. Think biblically about the Garden of Eden. And then I also want us to think theologically with respect to what these things mean for us. So Eden, it's very clear as we think about the entire revelation of God from beginning to end. Eden is a type of the promised land. When I say a type, think prototype. It is pointing to things that will come later. So Eden is a type of the promised land, and we know that the promised land that God gives to Israel, the land of Canaan, is ultimately a type of and a pointer to the new heavens and the new earth. The land of promise that God's people will inhabit forever. Think about your Bible this way. Eden to the promised land, to the new heavens and the new earth. The garden within Eden is a type, again, think prototype. It's a type of the temple that will come. This place where God's presence and His gifts, His blessings will uniquely be on the earth with His people. So the garden is a type of the temple. And we know that the temple is fulfilled by Christ. And we know that ultimately the temple finds its fulfillment in the immediate benevolent presence of God with us forever in the new heavens and the new earth. There will not be a temple in the new heavens and the new earth because the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple. Think this way about your Bible. This is like I said last week. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, your brain should go to Revelation 21 and 22 because this is what the Lord is doing. Now, regarding the garden being a temple of God's special presence and special blessing, let's think about that for a moment. This is a significant thing, biblically. The way the garden is described will show up later in Scripture in descriptions of the tabernacle and in descriptions of the temple. So for example, we know that the entrance to the Garden of Eden, we know this in chapter 3, is to the east. Well, the temple and the tabernacle always face east. We know that the tree of life resides within the garden. We know that the tree of life is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, but there's a lampstand in the middle of the tabernacle and the temple that's fashioned like a tree. These things are not coincidental. Adam, we are told, is put into the garden to work it and keep it. Those two verbs, the only other time they occur together in the Scriptures, is in the description of the duty of the priests in the temple. Work it, keep it. Guard it, keep it. This is the language, for example, of Numbers 
chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 8. The precious metals and the stones that are described in Eden. You might think that's interesting. Like, why are we talking about the fact that there's like gold and onyx and all these kinds of things in Eden? Well, it's not coincidental because precious metals and precious stones would later be used in the construction of the tabernacle and even in the fashioning of the breastplate that the high priest would wear. The cherubim that we're going to read about in Genesis chapter 3 that are placed at the entrance of the garden to guard it. The other place that cherubim show up to serve as a barrier is in the temple. Cherubim are woven onto the veil that separates the most holy place from the rest of the temple. Just like there were cherubim at the gates of the garden to separate it from the rest of the world and to keep the unholy out. Lastly, thinking about Eden as a temple, in particular the garden as a temple, there is a river that flows out of the garden. That river, it's very clear in the way that it's described, turns into these four great rivers that give life to the ancient Near East in its context. It's a life-giving river. Now that imagery of life-giving water flowing from the place of God's presence shows up later in the Bible in multiple places. For example, the psalmist will write in Psalm 46 and verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. But then there is the river that flows from the temple in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 47. Some may be familiar with that. Ezekiel has this heavenly guide showing him around and showing him what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. Showing him this vision of redemption. And so this heavenly guide is showing Ezekiel the temple. And there's in Ezekiel 47, water that flows out of the temple. It's a trickle as it's leaving the temple. But then the water becomes wider and deeper progressively as it makes its way away from the temple flowing eastward. And then these words in Ezekiel 47, verses 7 and following. The prophet writes this, As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he, that's his guide, said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. That is the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. So this living water will make the Dead Sea alive. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there and the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Skip to verse 12. And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water of them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, we're going to read Revelation 22, a piece of it again in a minute. But those words should sound familiar because we literally just read them in the service. Like that, that language about the river of life flowing from the presence of God is exactly the same in Ezekiel 47 as it is in Revelation 22. And it starts, that imagery does, in the Garden of Eden. Read your Bible this way. 
Now, all of this that I'm talking about with respect to the garden being a temple and God's special presence and blessing being there is significant for at least a couple of reasons. First, why does this matter? This whole temple thing, Justin, why does this matter? Well, first, because of the one who would come as the fulfillment of the temple, Jesus himself. The promises of God, right? He's laying the groundwork for all of his promises that he's going to accomplish through Christ at the very beginning. Jesus was called, amongst other things, what? Emmanuel, God with us. God's presence with us. God literally taking on flesh and dwelling with us. And we know, thinking about the temple and what the temple was for, that Jesus came to atone for sin. We know that the blood of bulls and goats in the tabernacle or in the temple could never really atone for sin, but Jesus could. And His blood could. He came to make, once and for all, the unclean clean. He came, once and for all, to make the unrighteous righteous. For Adam and Eve, before the fall, God's presence was with them in the garden. God was with them. For us now, as we await the consummation of our redemption, God is only found in Jesus Christ. There is no access to God apart from Christ. None. And when we come into the presence of Jesus is when we come into the presence of God. And Jesus, we know, is with us in His Word. Jesus, we know, is with us in His baptism. Jesus is with us in His table that we will come to later in this service. And Jesus has sent His own Spirit to live in us. But secondly, this imagery and these biblical theological themes of temple and the garden is significant because of the end of the story. When the Bible is read the way that we're trying to look at it right now, when it's read through the lens of redemptive history, and when it's read with an eye for things that occur earlier, that are fulfilled later, it's incredible how the Bible hangs together. For so many people, sadly, the Bible is overwhelming. The Bible feels disjointed. The Bible feels like a collection of odd stories. And what is this about? Friends, it is a cohesive and glorious message. In the new heavens and the new earth, as I mentioned a minute ago, there will not be a temple anymore. In the beginning, there was a garden where God dwelled with His people. Sin ruined it. God gave the tabernacle. God gave the temple. Then God gave His Son. He came and He lived with us. Then He ascended to heaven and sent His Spirit. And He is coming back and we will live with God forever. And there will be no need for a temple because as John wrote in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the heavenly city. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. We will be with God. This is important. Here at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, there is a foreshadowing and like very significant 
for those who have eyes to see like loud and colorful foreshadowing of the redemption that's coming. With Genesis 2 in mind and with Ezekiel 47 in mind, listen again to these words from Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You've heard that before. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When you read Genesis chapter 2, think about that. And marvel at the plan of God from before all time. So that's the first big subsection in part 2. Thinking about the garden in a biblical and theological way. Second thing that we're going to consider in more detail is the covenant God made with Adam. The covenant God made with Adam. I'm not going to bury the lead here. I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards on the table and then hope hopefully explain it as we understand it from Scripture. So there is a covenant that God made with Adam that's been known by a number of names through the history of the church. Sometimes it is called the Adamic covenant, the covenant God made with Adam, sometimes called the creation of life, sometimes called the covenant, the covenant of life, sometimes called the covenant of creation. What it has been known for or known as for hundreds of years, which is the language that we use here at CBC, this covenant God makes with Adam is known as the covenant of works. The covenant of works. It's called that because it is contingent upon Adam's obedience. Okay? We understand that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. It's called the covenant of works. And we understand that in this covenant, Adam served as the representative of the entire human race. So in that sense, he is the covenant head, the federal head of every human. As he stands in the garden, he represents us. Okay, so now let's just think about this. At the outset, a few things that we need to think about. The relationship between God and humanity has the character of a covenantal relationship inherently. Making covenants is how God relates to us. God, we understand this, He dwells in high and holy places. And He comes down from that exalted position he condescends to His creatures to relate to us. He reveals Himself and His ways with us. He reveals how we are to live. He reveals His justice. More than that though, He makes promises. And He keeps them. All of that is covenantal, inherent. So the relationship between God and man in Adam is a covenantal relationship. The two parties are God and man. The condition of the covenant is perfect obedience. The reward for obedience is life forever. The punishment for disobedience is death. It's 
pretty plain in that regard. God and man are the parties, the condition, perfect obedience, the reward for obedience is eternal life, the punishment for disobedience is death, physical and spiritual death. The clear teaching of the Scriptures is that Adam in this covenant represented us all in the garden. And there are a number of places that you can go to think about this, most pointedly perhaps Romans chapter 5, where there Adam and Jesus are contrasted. There are those of us who are in Adam. There are those of us who are in Christ. There are things that happen to every one of us because of what Adam did. And there are things that will happen for us that have been done for us by Christ that are counted to us. As Christ represents those who are in Him, so does Adam, is the teaching of the Scripture. And that, brothers and sisters, is covenantal language. So let's now look at Genesis. Let's just think about these things together. From Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, just very quickly, we see that God designates the created world as a realm over which Adam is to exercise dominion. Moving forward. In verse 7 of chapter 2, God makes Adam. In verse 8, he plants a garden. In verse 9, we learn that there are trees of life and trees of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden as man has been placed there. God is going to place Adam most pointedly in the garden beginning in verse 15. Look at your Bible. Verse 15, 16, and 17. God takes Adam and puts him into the garden to work it and keep it. To guard and keep it. To keep it holy. right, And to cultivate it. And then in verses 16 and 17, God gives more specific instructions to Adam. Adam can eat of any tree in the garden but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now alongside this specific command that God has given is the marching orders, or are the marching orders that Adam has been given. Cultivate the garden, guard it, keep it, exercise dominion as well over the earth. And alongside that, we understand that God had written His moral law into the fabric of the world He made. So the moral law of God written down on two tablets of stone has always existed. It just was written down and given to Moses. But it existed from the beginning. And Adam, as a creature of God, was obligated to keep that moral law. This has been the understanding of Christians for 2,000 years. So, speaking, like again, theologically, but this is good for us, the moral law combined with the specific commands given to Adam by God in the garden constitute the requirements of what we call the covenant of works. The moral law and the specific commands given constitute the requirements of the covenant of works that God made with Adam. He needed to obey these things. Now it's very clear, the two trees that exist in the garden, you might be thinking, why are they there? Why are they mentioned? Well, they're significant in understanding what Adam was doing in the garden and what Adam could accomplish in the garden or what he could lose in the garden. It's clear that the prohibition of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a test of Adam's fidelity to God wholesale. Adam is to guard and keep the garden, and this tree is his test. Will Adam obey God, or will Adam go his own way? Will he obey God? And do as he has been instructed? Or will he go his own way and eat of the tree that God has told him you must not eat of? 
The tree of life as it stands in the garden stands as a pledge of the life and eternal blessedness that Adam would have should he obey. So now putting all this together, the scriptural witness to this covenant that God made with Adam. God defined the terms of Adam's obedience. God defined the reward for obedience, namely, unshakable, eternal, heavenly life, as represented by the tree of life. God also defined the punishment for disobedience, namely, spiritual and physical death. There is a glory that Adam and thereby all of us fail to attain. You've read that before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is a language that the prophets use, like Hosea, when he talks about Israel, like Adam, transgressed the covenant. There's a covenant that Adam broke. Adam was banished from the place of the tree of life because he disobeyed. We're going to think more about that next week. God puts the angels to guard the entrance to the garden because Adam no longer has access to eternal life because he broke the covenant. Our condemnation, biblically, and our salvation are contrasted relative to Adam and Jesus. Every human being either stands in Adam or stands in Christ. In Adam there is guilt and condemnation. In Christ there is righteousness and eternal life. And so, it is right to conclude that God made a covenant with Adam. And I'm going to say this next sentence very slowly because this matters for us theologically. We're going to think about this more in just a moment. A The covenant that God made with Adam is this. A covenant through which Adam could attain the reward of eternal life for himself and his posterity through obedience. Or through which he could bring death upon himself and his posterity through his disobedience. That makes sense. Tracking with me. A covenant by which Adam could attain eternal life for himself and all humans through obedience. Or he could end up bringing death upon himself and us all through disobedience. We're going to come back and think about the significance of that covenant in just a moment. Third thing we're going to think about biblically and theologically briefly is the creation of Eve and the establishment of marriage. Creation of Eve and the establishment of marriage. In verse 18 of Genesis 2, God says it's not good for man to be alone. How so? Well, without woman there are no children. We know that. There's no filling the earth and subduing it as God has said human beings should do. That's certainly true. But there's more than that. Without man and woman, without Eve, there is no incarnation of the Son of God. There's no seed of the woman without Eve. There's no line of David. There's no line of anything if Eve is not created. And perhaps even more pointedly, in thinking about why God made man and woman, why He made us male and female, why He even instituted marriage in the first place. The goal of everything that God is going to do in the world is found and seen in what Jesus would come and do, and it's going to be displayed in the union between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. And so God ordains and creates man and woman and ordains marriage. If man is alone, there is no marriage. And if there is no marriage, there is no pointer to the union of Christ and the church. Adam is made from the dust and Eve is made from Adam. And when he sees her, what does he say in verse 23? 
He says, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is of me. And the two become one. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Remember, we were just in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember the language of Paul in that chapter. The point of Paul in describing marriage is saying that marriage points to the union of Christ in the church. Woman being created out of man, literally being bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and then being united to him in marriage. The union of a man and a woman as depicted in the garden, which is now paradigmatic for all of humanity for all time. This beautiful design of God is what it is and exists because the church's union with Christ was always in view. The reason marriage even exists is because Christ in the church was the plan of God from before all time. This, we can start to begin to understand why Jesus will say something like, there will be no marriage in heaven. Because marriage as an institution existed to preach a sermon about redemption. And in the new heavens and the new earth, redemption is over. We need to think this way. Like as evangelicals, we get geeked up about talking about marriage for marriage's sake. And it's like, that's fine on the one hand, but marriage exists in the first place because of the plan of God to save sinners. Verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This verse quite simply communicates the beauty, the transparency, and the harmony of marriage as God created it. Now, sin will tragically mar this on a human level. Tragically. Yet, the beauty, the safety, the transparency, the harmony of our union with Christ remains. We can't mess that one up. Now, Two reflections. I realize that time is ticking by. Two reflections to end our time together. The first one is on that covenant of works and why it matters. That covenant that God made with Adam where he represented us all and where he fell, why does it matter? One thing to observe. Notice the requirements of the covenant of works. The requirements are perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. If Adam violates the terms of the covenant at all, he dies. There is no mercy in the covenant God made with Adam. None. No grace. Yes, God condescended to reveal Himself. Amen. But there's no mercy in this covenant. There is no such thing as doing pretty well at the covenant of works. There is no such thing as partial fulfillment. No failure whatsoever is allowed. Which only makes sense, right? If you're going to earn eternal life, you better be perfect. And of course, as we know, Adam failed. And when he did, we ought not be hard on him. He did just as we would have done. Own that. Just as you would have done, he did. And so, Jesus came to accomplish what Adam could not. There was the first Adam, and then there is the new and better one. There's the first Adam, and then the one that Paul refers to as the last Adam, namely Jesus. Adam 
as we're going to read about more pointedly next week, but we're going to even think about Genesis 2 with Genesis 3 in view. Adam was tested in a perfect garden, in a world that wasn't fallen and failed. Jesus was tested in a fallen world, out in the wilderness, and succeeded. So friends, here is what the Bible presents. Here is why that covenant that God made with Adam matters for us. Consider the consistency of the plan of God. Just as the one man represented us and did what all of us would do and we inherit his sin, the exact same thing happens with another man and his righteousness. Just as the one man represented us and did what we would have done and we inherit his sin, the exact same thing happens with another man and his righteousness. Namely, Jesus accomplishes righteousness and we inherit it by faith. The difference, of course, is that Jesus, doing what He did, did what we could never do. He did what we would not do. And His perfect record is given to sinners. That's the message of the Gospel. The great exchange. He takes our sin, we get His righteousness. Apart from works, by faith alone, grounded in the grace of God alone, not your merit, not mine. Let's keep thinking briefly about what Jesus came to do. Actually, I'm going to start misleading. I'm going to start with a couple of things that He didn't come to do. First, Jesus did not come to give us a perfect example so that through our effort to emulate Him, we might achieve salvation. He didn't come to give us a perfect example so that through our effort to emulate Him, we might achieve salvation. No way. Is He our perfect example? Yes. Can we be saved by emulating Him? No way. Because we're sinners. Also, Jesus, this is a big one, did not come to give us a clean slate. You hear people talk like this. Jesus came to just kind of wipe the slate clean. Well, if that's true, we're all damned. Jesus did not come, friends, to give us like a do-over. Another shot. Like, hey, Adam blew it, guys, but I'm going to wipe the slate clean, roll it back to zero, and let's see what you got. It's not what He came to do. He came to accomplish our salvation. Beginning, middle, and end. And it's over. He came to die for sins, to satisfy the justice of God once and for all, to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified, and to give us His unshakable righteousness. It's done. And last time I checked, done is way better than a do-over. You can't mess up done. You can blow a do-over. We receive everything that Jesus did simply by trusting Him. And that's how sinners who still sin can have peace with God. Last reflection. Second reflection. We're going to connect 
the end to the beginning. So just a reflection on connecting the end and the beginning of Scripture. In connecting the end to the beginning, it is right to say, as it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. Like, as it was in the Garden of Eden, so it will be in the end. People say that. And that's right, kind of. Kind of. As it was in the beginning, this is more accurate. As it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end, but better. Better. Why do I say that? In the beginning, it was good. Adam was made upright and sinless. But he could sin. He could sin. Unshakable righteousness and the confirmed promise of eternal life were not Adam's in the beginning. He was righteous, but he could fall. He could earn eternal life, but he didn't have it. But those things, unshakable righteousness, confirmed eternal life, are ours in Christ now. And they will be ours forever in the end. See, you actually have gained far more in Christ than you lost in Adam. Think about that. You have gained far more in Christ than you lost in Adam. Because in Christ, all of the wrong that we have done is atoned for. All of our guilt and corruption that we have inherited has been absolved. And all the justice that we deserve has been satisfied. In Christ, we have that unshakable righteousness. And in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And by nothing, we mean nothing. Not even our sin can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Adam could mess it up. Adam could blow it. And he did. And friend, if we could mess it up, we flat out would. We would. We fall a lot. But though we fall, Christ's love is sure. We fail often, but Christ has paid for every one of those failings. And we tend, if we're honest, to make a mess of things. We can really make a mess of our lives in a way that bewilders us. Like we don't even understand what we're doing. And we can make a mess of our lives in a way that grieves us. But we stand by faith, dressed in the very righteousness of Christ, faultless to stand before the throne of God. The final judgment is not something that produces anxiety for the believer at all. Because God's justice has already been satisfied on your behalf in Christ. In Christ, we will inherit an unshakable kingdom. And it's been guaranteed to us. And it will be even better than it was in the beginning. And here's the last piece that is maybe the best part of all. As we are given this kingdom, and as we are with God forever, in perfect fellowship with Him, in perfect harmony and relationship with each other, no sin, no pain, no sorrow, no mourning, no suffering of any kind anymore, there will be 
No possibility of it ever going away. Can you imagine? No possibility of it ever going away. That is hard to understand as a fallen human being. As human beings sometimes, if we're honest, who live life waiting for the other shoe to drop. Just waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah, it's good right now, but it probably won't be in an hour, and I know for sure it won't be in a week. That will not be our experience anymore. Perfect peace forever because of what Christ has accomplished for us. It will never go away. Jesus Himself has secured all of that for you and all of that for me. It's the greatest news in the world. And we respond simply by saying, Jesus, thank you for what you have done. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would fill our hearts with gratitude for what your Son has accomplished for us. And we pray, Father, that you would give us faith. Give us faith to trust your promises. Because there are times in our experience in this fallen world where it's hard for us to even comprehend what being perfectly righteous will be like. It's hard for us to comprehend the fact that nothing bad will ever happen again. It's hard for us sometimes to believe that as sinful as we are, that we have been declared righteous and that we will stand justified in your presence one day. Help us to believe those things. Not because of anything in us, but because completely of what Jesus has done for us. May we see His power, His grace, His mercy, His love, and His sufficiency even this morning. Continue to minister to us. Continue to sustain and nourish our faith in Jesus even as we come to this table. Encourage our hearts as we consider what Christ has done for us. And we pray for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.